Hey there, welcome to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week, we have a very special Women's History Month episode of the show for you, starting with a conversation with Emmy-nominated writer and comedian Jamie Loftus talking about ACCast, which is her hit podcast about the Kathy cartoon and why she thinks the character of Kathy didn't really get a fair shake. Then we're going to talk to Sylvia Vasquez-Lovato. She's the first openly gay woman to climb the Seven Summits, which would be the highest mountain on each continent. And yes, that's as hard as it sounds like it would be. Then we're going to catch up with legendary indie musician and activist Ani DeFranco. Ani is even going to play a song for us. So, you know, life goal unlocked for me. Uh, we're hoping you make it your life goal to stick around for this week's episode of Livewire because it's going to be a good one. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? Going great. Are you ready to play a little station location identification examination. Oh, yeah. A station location identification examination is where I give Elena a little quiz about a place in the country where we are on the radio, and she's got to guess where I'm talking about. I feel like you're going to get this one. I'm trying to think of a hint that will extend it a little bit. How about this one? This is going back a ways. In 1926, Bertha Knight Landis became the mayor of this city. She was the first woman to be elected as mayor in a major American city. We're talking women's history this week, so this is an appropriate hint, but also a little bit of an obscure fact. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it could be one of those ones where, like, the husband dies and then the wife becomes the mayor, like it happens with Texas governors all the time. (laughs) I think I think this was a little bit a little less nepotistic than that. Let me give you another hint. This city is home to American writer and author of "So You Want to Talk About Race," friend of the program, Ijeoma Aluo, Seattle, Washington. Ding, ding, ding! Amazing. And uh, KUOW, where we're on in Seattle, 94.9 FM, one of our very favorite stations. Uh, some, of the, some of the best folks out there tuning in from Seattle, including a large contingent of my actual family. So <laughs> shout out to everyone tuning in from Seattle. Uh, should we get to the show? Let's do it. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's... This week, comedian and writer Jamie Loftus. 
I just remember that there was this one comic strip in the newspaper that my mom thought was funny, my dad thought was awful, and I didn't understand 1%. And writer and mountain climber Sylvia Vasquez-Lavado. I never saw climbing as a way of conquering. You know, the very first time I came across the Himalayas, I felt a safety, I felt a sense of belonging. With music from Ani DeFranco and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone tuning in from all over the country, including KUOW in Seattle, 94.9 FM. We have a great show in store for you this week. We are celebrating Women's History in honor of Women's History Month. And uh, we have a listener question that we asked about in honor of that as well, which is what unsung or undersung hero from women's history would you like to shout out? People have been sending in those responses. We're going to hear those coming up in just a minute on the show. First, though, let's jump right in with our first guest on this special edition of the show. She's an Emmy-nominated writer who's also the host and creator of four critically acclaimed podcasts, which the New York Times described as unexpectedly gripping explorations of niche subjects. Uh, we talked to her about her podcast, Cast, which explores the unlikely feminist icon, Kathy. That's right, from the comic strip, Kathy. The show was named the number one podcast of the year by Vulture back in 2021. Take a listen to our conversation with Jamie Loftus, recorded live at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, we had you on the show a while ago talking about your really incredible podcast, Lolita Podcast. Um, and, and now we're, I want to talk a little bit about this ACCast, which is about the, the comic Kathy, yeah. which um, I'm a bit older than you, but I think like you describe your experience in the podcast. You grew up at a time where really the the idea of this Kathy comic was just something to sort of make fun of, or as you say in the show, dunk on. And I have to yeah. say, I went into this listening experience feeling the same way, but I came out of it with a totally different sense mm -hmm. of where Kathy fits into the culture. I'm what so got glad. you interested in her? Uh, I think that I, I reflect on things I glossed over as a kid quite a bit. And um, I grew up kind of, whatever, at the tail end of uh, newspaper comics being kind of a daily or weekly ritual. And I just remember that there was this one comic strip in the newspaper that my mom thought was funny, my dad thought was awful, and I didn't understand 1%. <laughs> because it was a comic strip for adult women, and, no, and there was no one else kind of making something like that. So me as a kid, I was like... I don't, I don't understand why uh, taxes are stressful. <laughs> and, and I don't understand the wage gap. But there, <laughs> but there was a huge audience for it. And it's an audience that at that time was all, all of these kind of legitimate concerns that were like put in this very comedic way were, were made to seem silly. Mm -hmm. When reflecting on it now, it's, the jokes are still funny and mo a lot of the jokes hold up. Uh, but the concerns are are ones that I now have as an adult because it turns out taxes do suck. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a wage gap. <laughs> uh, what do you think people uh, don't understand about the complexity of the Kathy character uh, when they think it's just someone who's a chocoholic and yells ack a lot? Mm -hmm. 
Well, all those things are true, I will say. <laughs> she does say act and she does love chocolate. Uh, she also but, has a lot of sex, yeah. as you mentioned, and you use a different word for it on the yes, show. Yes, and I know that I'm not going to use it here, but you know the one I'm thinking of, and she does it all the time. <laughs> and you can't do that in the newspaper, but it's, like, heavily implied. I'm like, oh, she's, like, dating, and it's lasting for a while. Like, she's doing it, you know? <laughs> and she's doing it well. I don't know that. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, she was like a very uh, complex woman who was kind of coming into adulthood in the 70s and 80s. And so she was very much engaging with all of these second wave feminist ideas that I honestly didn't know very much about. And I think, you know, with every wave of social movements, feminism included, you know, there is a honest and I think very legitimate impulse to kind of dunk on your predecessors in mm -hmm. some ways because they were not as progressive as they should have been and there are people who and, and many women who were erased from that movement that need that called out and then also if they hadn't done the work they had done then we wouldn't be where we are now and so uh, the Kathy comic strips became this very bizarre specific way to engage with that idea and also you know just find a woman who was very privileged in some ways, but in other ways had to start a whisper network at her own job in the 80s in order to thrive in the newspaper column. Like it was, it was just kind of this very bizarre way to learn more about kind of what my own mom and aunts went through. And your mom is in the podcast. My mom is in the podcast, <laughs> and now she and uh, the author of the Kathy comics, Kathy Geiswhite, are, are friends. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy Geiswhite is truly like, if she feels like a second mom to me now. She's been so supportive and so kind throughout this whole process, which I don't know if I would be able to give you know, someone the same amount of grace that she gave me in making that show. She was so awesome. And she, in a very Kathy way, recently sent my mom an edible arrangement <laughs> and was like, hey, thank you for raising Jamie. And then my mom sent her an edible arrangement back <laughs> and was like, thank you for being nice to Jamie. And then Kathy sent an edible arrangement back. Wait. So we're at three edible arrangements. That's what's keeping that business in business? Because I have never been able to figure out who's sending those things. It's your mom and Kathy. It's a tennis game of them sending old pineapple back and forth to each other. And at this point, I'm just a third party. I'm the referee. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, there's only really one character from the sort of Kathy universe that you have just unalloyed... Um, distaste for, mm -hmm. and it would be her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Irving. Uh, garbage. <laughs> garbage. Yeah. Irving, bad. No sympathy for Irving. No. No. What is it about Irving's character that you find so detestable? What isn't it about Irving's character <laughs> that I find disgusting? No, I, I, I mean, in some ways... I understand he's, he's got a lot of internalized self-hatred. He's got a lot of internalized misogyny. And he's very, like, upwardly mobile boomer guy in that he has no recognition of his own privilege. And he's constantly buying gadgets and won't shut up about it. <laughs> it's just like, he's just like all of my worst uncles <laughs> bundled into one cartoon character. And he has no recognition for 
Kathy, this amazing woman who loves him. And there's all of these uh, moments. I mean, and the more that I read about Irving, the more that I disliked him in specific ways. Because, you know, Kathy would go to therapy and he'd be like, I can't believe you'd work on yourself, Kathy. And it's like, look in the mirror, sir. Like, it's, he's, <laughs> he was just an infuriating character top to bottom. Well, you also mentioned in the podcast, he was Ted Bundy's favorite yeah, yes. comic I, character. <laughs> Yes, that, that was mentioned in, I believe it was Ted Bundy's prison correspondence <laughs> that he mentioned being a big fan of Irving and rooting for him, which is all you need to know. Yeah. Yeah. I'd call that a red flag. Yeah, Irving doesn't, isn't known for like his stands, but his main stand was a famous murderer. <laughs> <laughs> this is Livewire from PRX. We're listening to a conversation we recorded with the comedian Jamie Loftus about her podcast, ActCast, talking about the uh, Kathy comic strip. Now, we've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere, because when we get back, we're going to hear Jamie's take on why it is that Kathy will not give up in the face of career trouble and lame boyfriends and the like. Don't go anywhere. More Livewire with Jamie Loftus in just a minute. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners... Uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we, we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including... Uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to LivewireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my. There's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/slash LiveWire to get 15% off your first order when you use LiveWire at checkout. 
ZBiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to ZBiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello, and we are listening to a conversation with comedian Jamie Loftus talking about her podcast, ActCast, about the Kathy cartoon character. As we celebrate women's history this week on the show, take a listen. When you're sort of summing up what you've learned in your sort of time with this this whole idea of Kathy and talking to the creator, Kathy Geiswhite, mm-hmm. you said you really think that this is a sort of long-term meditation on effort and failure. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Um, well, in, in the case of the Kathy comics, uh, what you come up against time and time again with this character is she wants more for herself. She wants to you know, be upwardly mobile in her career. She wants to be paid equally. She wants to, quote unquote, have it all in the way we see all of these uh, characters who are women struggle with throughout, you know, multiple generations. And repeatedly in the Kathy comics, she's told no, and doors are slammed in her face, but she keeps trying. And I feel like that is very much in many ways the story of every generation of women, but to see it specifically put in my mom's generation was so enlightening where it was you know like my my mom and many women of that generation had the same issues of knowing their worth and learning their worth and doing the work on themselves and still having for all these various reasons societally doors slammed in their face whether it was in personal relationships with the Irvings of the world who were (laughs) not realizing their worth and refusing to work on themselves or whether it was bosses who wouldn't pay them for what they were worth or whatever it was it was this story of again and again realizing like I am worth something the world doesn't recognize that but I have to do what I can to hold on to that and now, you know, as, as I get older myself, it's it's a lesson that unfortunately is still very important to hold on to. And I didn't appreciate or understand it when I first encountered the Kathy comics. And now I'm just like, wow, she was really onto something. I wish that the lessons weren't so applicable still, but mm-hmm. it turns out that that is the history of women. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Jamie Loftus, everyone right here on Livewire. That was Jamie Loftus right here on Livewire. Now, Elena, since we recorded that conversation with Jamie, she has been very busy, really raising the question, what am I doing with my life? Uh, <laughs> of course, you can get ActCast, which we were just talking about. She also released a new limited series podcast. It's called Ghost Church, Ooh. and it explores grief and the tradition of kind of uh, communing with the dead. Also, mediums are mentioned on the show. Um, so check that out. And then also, I've got this book actually here at my house. Jamie has a book coming out in May called Raw Dog, The Naked Truth About Hot Dogs. <laughs> and she's actually going to be on the show to tell us all about it. So make sure you check out what Jamie has been getting up to. Hey, special thanks this week to Josh O'Rourke 
of Portland, Oregon, and Manuel Galaviz of Vancouver, Washington. Josh and Manuel are part of the Livewire member community, and they are generously supporting the show with a donation each month, which is a very big deal to us because it's the only way we're able to keep doing this. So, Josh and Manuel, thank you for keeping Livewire going. You're listening to Live Wire. Of course, each week we ask our listeners a question. Since we're celebrating women's history this week, we asked our listeners, what unsung or undersung hero from women's history would you like to shout out? Elena has been collecting those up. Uh, what are you seeing? I have had the best time learning from all these listener suggestions, all these unsung heroes. I literally didn't know any of the people that we're going to talk about today, starting with Susan's suggestion of Bridget Biddy Mason. Bridget Mason was born into slavery in Georgia, and she went with the people that enslaved her to Utah for the Mormon migration, and then to California. And when she got to California, she was already a mom. And in a landmark trial, she won her freedom and she won freedom for her family. It was a huge deal. This was in 1856. Then she went on to become one of the richest women in LA. You go. I know. She was known as Grandma Mason. She started as a physician's assistant and a midwife. She bought a bunch of property and then used some of, she had like the equivalent of like $7 million today. She used her wealth to establish a daycare center for working parents like in the 19th century. That is so ahead of its time. I know. She created an account at a store where families who were victims of a big flood could get supplies. She also co-founded and financed the first African Methodist Episcopal Church, which is still going strong in Los Angeles. Wow. An amazing person. And my life is so much richer now that I know about Grandma Biddy Mason. I lived in L.A. for a long time, and I'd never heard that story of, of Biddy Mason. So shout out to her. That's pretty amazing. All right. What's another undersung hero that we want to hear about on this week's show? Okay, we were talking a little bit about uh, Lady Mayors in the beginning of the episode. <laughs> sure. Have you ever heard of Laura Starcher? I don't think I have. Kristen told me about Laura Starcher. In 1916, Laura Starcher and a bunch of other women in Umatilla, Oregon, ran a stealth write-in campaign and overturned the male city council and the mayor's office. But here's the trick. Laura Starcher started a writing campaign and was elected mayor and beat her own husband. Wow. <laughs> Along with a bunch of other people uh, on the council. And the news stories sort of brought a lot of national news in kind of an amusement way. Like they thought it was this funny novelty. They called it, this was in like 1916, the petticoat government, but they actually got some stuff done. They improved water and electrical services. They approved funds for streets and sidewalk projects. They made new railroad crossing signs. They founded a library. They replaced all the city's American flags. When the smallpox epidemic happened in 1918, they appointed a health official and a lot of women stayed in those positions for years and years and years. And when Laura Starcher left, she was replaced by another woman as the mayor of Umatilla. Who'd have known? It's, uh, it's amazing. That's incredible. Okay, one last undersung hero from women's history that we want to find out about this week. <laughs> 
Oh, I have to tell you about Eva Jesse, who Karen brought to my attention. Uh, Eva Jesse was born at the turn of the century, and she was an American musical conductor, a choral conductor, the first black woman to receive any international distinction as a choral conductor. And she's known as one of the main choral conductors and choral group leaders of the Harlem Renaissance. She worked with Virgil Thompson and Mm. Gertrude Stein. She was the musical director for uh, the first productions of Porgy and Bess in 1935, and her choral group was the official choir for the Freedom March in the 1960s. So she's a real icon of American musical history, vocal musical history, and uh, just a real groundbreaking legend, and I'm so happy to learn about her as well. I think I said this on the show last week, but... This is the second year that we've done this when we're talking about women's history and asked the listeners to Mm -hmm. tell us about some folks we might not have heard of. And I feel like this is a almost inexhaustible resource because there are so many people, so many women who were not thought of during their time. And so we can probably do this for the next 10 years of Livewire and learn something each year. So, all right, this is Livewire Radio. Our next guest is an explorer in more ways than one. She was raised in Peru. She then navigated her way to the highest echelons of Silicon Valley before realizing that she really couldn't outrun her own childhood trauma. So uh, what did she do? Well, she started climbing, specifically mountains. She climbed Everest, Kilimanjaro, and a bunch of others, uh, becoming the first openly gay woman to climb what are known as the Seven Summits. That's like the tallest mountain on every continent. Her latest book is In the Shadow of the Mountain, and we talked to her in front of a live audience at the Alberta Rhodes Theater in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Sylvia Vasquez-Lavada. Sylvia, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. This is so exciting. Thank you very much, Portland. Thank you. Um, This uh, book covers uh, really the span of your life up till now, but let's kind of start in San Francisco in the early 2000s because you're living there, and by a lot of outward indications, you're doing pretty well, (laughs) doing great at work. You have a lot of relationships, or let's be honest, a lot of hookups. Yes, I did. You're a very was, popular person. Yes. Your life seems to be going okay, but what was really going on in your life at that time? Well, I was secretly dealing with addiction. I was a full rage alcoholic, and very, I mean, very few people knew how many times I had been evicted and how many times I had ended up on the ER. Um, and my life was spiraling out of control, especially because um, I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse. And the emotion, the shame, the trauma had, you know, had chased me in my 20s. And I literally was spiraling out. But on the, you know, on the facade that I was, I had a stable job that I seemed to, you know, to be able to go to fun places and hit places was a way of hiding just the amount of pain and the amount of self-destruction that I was causing myself. So you grew up in a, um, I guess, you say an upper middle class family in Peru? Yes. So you grew up with resources, but it was also a family that was full of secrets, including yes. uh, some, some people that you thought were your cousins that were actually your siblings yes. because your mother had given birth to them earlier, but then was sort of kept from seeing them. What was that story? You know, it was very unfortunate. Uh, my father, you know, was a little older than my mom, and he was raised in a very conservative way, you know, very patriarchal way, and he was very possessive. And so when he got together with my mother, he gave her a choice. You know, you can get together with me, but you have to let go of your children. Yet, you know, my mother, as, as any woman, 
she found a way of trying to see her children uh, and trying to be part of their lives. And unfortunately, she entrusted me at the house with a person that she thought that, you know, she can count on who ended up being my abuser. And so every time she would sneak out to be with my siblings, um, you know, I was experiencing the abuse. Um, and what was really hard growing up is that we would only get together on Mother's Day or on Christmas. And, you know, my older siblings, they were known as my cousins. And they were so loving and so kind. And, you know, I, I remember just always like being, you know, close to them, but not knowing what the secret was until ultimately it unraveled. What was that like for you when you actually found out that these were your actual brothers and sisters? I think for me was confusion. And, and even by the time that I found out, you know, that they were my real siblings, I was already experiencing the abuse. Mm. My parents had a very violent relationship. And then on top of this, we were having the birth of a terrorist movement in Peru. So there was a lot of hyperinflation. There was a lot of chaos around my life. And so for me, I was trying to, you know, find answers. I was trying to get to the truth. And if anything, I kind of was surprised, if almost like, wow, I have other siblings. Mm. Um, and then understanding the complexities of, you know, the drama that my father's way of being created was ultimately very hurtful. How old were you when you realized that what you were going through in adulthood was related to what had happened in your childhood? Well, I came to this country trying to outrun my past. I, I actually, if anything, I came to the States with a scholarship, and I, the, the, it was almost like escape. You know, when I told my mother what had happened to me, and I unfortunately didn't tell her until I was 15, um, so I went from the ages of 10 to 15 on my own, pretty much blaming myself, um, that, you know, she took me to a psychiatrist. They did a bunch of tests, and they were like, I think she's better off leaving the country. And so for me, it was like, okay, coming to America, you know, <laughs> a way to start new. I, I remember, you know, seeing 90210 and feeling that, you know, life in the States is going to be perfect. And, you know, so I, you know, and I, I ended up going to the Amish country in uh, Pennsylvania. So that yes. <laughs> so great in the book when you, you show up at the Philadelphia airport and you're like, hello, I am Sylvia and I'm from Peru and yes. I'm going to college. And you, you find your way to the Amish country. It's, it's one of my favorite lies. It's like, hello, I'm Sylvia from Peru and I'm going to Millersburg University of Pennsylvania. And they're like, wait, what? <laughs> and nobody, I mean, and I figured like University of Pennsylvania, you know, Millersburg University of Pennsylvania, it should be like an annex or something close. But, um, but yeah, definitely was a very unique start in, in life in America. <laughs> This is Livewire Radio. We are talking to Sylvia Vasquez Lovato about her book, In the Shadow of the Mountain. When did the idea first enter your head to try to climb Mount Everest? <laughs> well, you know, I call myself an accidental mountaineer. I come from a country that is known by its gorgeous mountain ranges, but it never appealed to me. You know, we always saw it as only the toughest of the tough could do it. And I even remember, I think we one of the very few trips that we did with my family, we went to... Uh, it was Karan, and we tried to take a family photo in a boulder, and it was a five-feet boulder, and I freaked out. And I had a massive meltdown, and from then I was curious, like, I'm never trying that. Um, but it was interesting because I was, my life was spiraling out of control. I already had gotten a DGY, I had been sent to jail, you know, and that hadn't stopped me. 
And I hit a point in which my baby brother found me passed out at the entrance of my home. And it felt that I had been, like, you know, I couldn't hide anymore. So I asked for help and I told my mom, you know, I, I need help. She's like, come down to Peru, you're, you're going to do something that your cousin is going to help you with. It's called ayahuasca. <laughs> and, and so my mother was a very conservative woman. I mean, you know, we'll go to church. And so I'm like, okay, we're going to do ayahuasca. First of this all, was, by the way, the most wholesome ayahuasca, <laughs> yeah. most family-oriented yes, family ayahuasca family. trip of all time. They, like, pick you up. They yeah. take you out to the place. Everyone's like, we're really rooting for Sylvia with this out-of-body experience. I mean, well, who does ayahuasca with their parents? I mean, it, it, it is very interesting. But, but so that was quite unique. And, and so, of course, I'm, like, you know, feeling, I mean, like many of us, I'm just like, okay, great. I'm going to have a vision of the people that are causing all this damage in my life because I wasn't ready to, to really admit them myself. So I'm just like, okay, let me see who am I going to see? Who are all those negative forces? And I'm doing the ayahuasca, and the very first person that appears is me as a little girl. The little girl that I had ignored through all my years that I had run away from Peru. The, the life that I had wanted to disappear. And so I see her, I see her fragility, and all she wanted was reconnection with my adult self. And so I remember like embracing her and feeling that wholesomeness, and there was something powerful. And as we're doing this, then I hear this rumbling around us, and these mountains took shape. And my little girl grabs my hand and starts taking me into mountains. And so that was a powerful vision that I had on, on this episode with ayahuasca. And so I'm a Virgo. I can be very square. And I figured, you know what? Why don't I? I could have looked at it and been like the metaphor of life, walk the mountains you know, of life with my little girl. But I'm like, no, 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 no. Let's put this into action. And I'm like, if I need to bring this massive pain why don't I bring it to the most massive mountain in the world? Why don't I walk to the base of Everest? And, of course, I never had done anything like that. I, I had never, you know, hiked before. I didn't have any of the gear. But, but there was something powerful about how that vision came from something so sacred and so innocent of me that I figured, like, I have nothing to lose. So, you know, I just did what any normal person would do. I, you know, I decided sure. to attempt <laughs> to just walk to the base of Everest. <laughs> We're talking to Sylvia Vasquez Lovato here on Livewire. Uh, the book is In the Shadow of the Mountain. So, I mean, then you've gone on to have this incredible kind of mountaineering career and, and established this, this record of being the first openly gay woman to climb the Seven Summits. What do you think has made you so good at mountaineering from such an inauspicious start of not wanting to get on that boulder? Yeah, I, I think, you know, for there are a couple of things, I mean... First of all, I never saw climbing as a way of conquering. You know, the very first time I came across the Himalayas, I felt a safety, I felt a sense of belonging that I had never experienced in my life. And something completely just broke. You know, any, any darkness that I had kind of felt that I was being held, and that's what it is, almost like my shadow. All, all those secrets, all that pain was nothing in comparison to the power of the mountain. And so the way that I've taken into climbing has always been as a way of reverence, of respect, of actually connection. And, and so that takes away from, I mean, from me the pressure of ego. 
I always say I don't conquer anything because when you are in these massive mountains, we're so tiny. Mm. First of all, these things have been information for millions of years. We're just passing by, so like we're gonna conquer who? I mean, the <laughs> mountain is looking at us going like, oh really? I'm gonna put a little storm and you're gonna be blowing off, a, off the mountain. <laughs> so, so there is a sense of me of humility that I, that I come through this. And I think that has allowed me to almost feel as if I'm going in a temple. And it makes the experience very fulfilling. And what I've really enjoyed is the opportunity of getting to know myself more. I mean, I was going through this, and I learned from the very early start that you can't do this while drunk, <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> it's a little bit like your vision is quite impaired. So you and, tried that. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> one of those things is like you get a headache, and you're like, oh, my God, what am I throwing up? Um, but if anything, mountains kept me safe, and mountains kind of saved my life. Do you think physically, though, you have some kind of gift, whether it's lung capacity or just tenacity? Because, I mean, a lot of people have tried these things that you have done, and they have they've quit, and you didn't. Is that just sheer willpower? What do you attribute that to? I think stubbornness, I would call it. <laughs> you are a Virgo, <laughs> as a you Virgo, reveal. Yes. <laughs> I think it's stubbornness. Um, it's, it's actually just a perseverance. It's a curiosity. I mean, what I get in mountains in nature is all. You know, and it is proven that three days in nature starts rewiring of the brain. So most of these expeditions, you know, usually go over a week. And because I have found so much inspiration and safety that, you know, by the fourth day, I'm kind of connected. And it's almost like, you know, the curiosity about, let's see how far we can go. Are you just unfazed now by pooping outside? <laughs> <laughs> It's in the book, by it the is, way. Yeah. Uh, I call myself the woman who shit her pants. So you, you, you <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And, and, and I'm proud of saying that. But uh, but yeah, you know, I look at it as as a as a new kind of comfort. So you know. <laughs> um, now, even after you climbed Everest, you were still actively drinking. Yes, I was. So wh wh how was it that you came back from that intense experience and were like, but I am still going to rely on this, on this drug to try to alter my kind of feelings? Well, you know, the amount of euphoria, um, especially after a lot of the summits, there was a sense of celebration. And, and of course, there was a way of like, I mean, you just have all this adrenaline and it'll be like, ah, you know, how to do it. And I mean, it is great that we finished the book at the top of Everest because huh. if people would know coming down, you know, I still had like, I party for like three days. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's, I mean, but the beauty, I mean, now I've been four years sober, um, but Congratulations, you know, well, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I think at the time, for me, you know, I felt that I still had control over my drinking. Mm -hmm. So even after coming back and partying, I felt like, well, I've done this amazing thing. And, you know, maybe, maybe a little celebration. Let me give myself a little time to, you know, good job for doing this, for exposing my life. Um, you know, my year after climbing Everest, on my anniversary, I ended up having a bike accident. I ended up on the ICU, and the doctors found a brain tumor. They couldn't determine if it was cancerous or benign for a couple of days. My mother had died of cancer, so I'm like, and we've had it in the family. So I, I told myself, well, you know, it could be my time to go. And the very first thing that came into my life was gratitude. I, I remember being like, God, you know, I've had such an amazing life with all the ups and downs. I've seen some of the most beautiful sunrises, sunsets. I've seen this uninhibited dawn. And I figured like, well, if it's my time to go, you know, I'll quit my job tomorrow and I'll spend the rest of my time trying to work with young girls, trying to climb and trying to share my story. 
So I remember putting myself a little bit of purpose, yet I still had to finish that last mountain, which was Denali. And after I was done with it, I, I remember I came down and I had a bad episode of drinking. And I, I just told myself, okay, you just completed this thing. You know, it's either one more drink or your life. And so I decided to take, you know, a closer look to my addiction and to figure, okay, where is the pain? And a dear friend of mine recommended me to take these incredible classes on compassion, like self-compassion, and that completely changed my life. And it actually allowed me to start walking my talk. And I felt, okay, now if I can, if I can actually, if I want to be able to share my story, and if I want to be able to do it in a vulnerable way that I can even walk my talk... I need to like face this demon, you know, for once and for all. And, and it's been one of the most beautiful gifts. And so writing this book has truly saved my life in, in that way. Wow. A, a lot of this book, a lot of the parts about the trauma have to do with secrecy in your family and also you feeling this tremendous sense of shame and trying to keep secrets together, whether it was, it was the trauma that you went through as a child or your drinking or what have you. I mean, was, was climbing Mount Everest or was climbing the Seven Summits more difficult than putting all of that information into this book that now, you know, lots and lots of people are going to read and hear about? I, you know, kind of reliving pretty much the book was the hardest thing. You know, first of all, I hadn't opened those, I mean, I hadn't opened a lot of those experiences um, and I was doing it while sober. And so there was no word for me to hide. And that's the one thing I'm so proud about the book. It's almost like I, I think I overshared too much. I mean, my family's not too happy. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, for me, it was somebody needed to say things that sometimes we don't want to say. And being able to bring out shame and secrecy out of the shadows and put it out there. So it was really tough. But, you know, I knew, I mean, this is a, this is a book that I wish I would have read after getting out, of, getting out of one of the ER sessions. I, I, I mean, I wish I would have been able to find a story of somebody who was that vulnerable and that open. And so that's something that has filled me with pride. It was hard, but I had a lot of help. I mean, I, I had my therapy, and I love that. And, and one of my biggest realizations is how much information we store in our bodies. Sure. It is amazing when, when, if we're really committed to trying to find out, you know, things that maybe have caused a lot of pain in us, the information is in us. And actually, it made me really sad to see, you know, how much self-destruction I was, I was doing to myself. Well, it's amazing to hear uh, what you've come through. And I think it's really kind of inspirational to other people who have experienced trauma in their life. I'm wondering, would you say the takeaway from this book is that everyone should do ayahuasca? <laughs> yes. Everybody should do ayahuasca. No. <laughs> but no, the, the, the reality, I think, is, you know, this is a story, even though it comes across as a mountaineering story, it is a story of all of us. You know, we all have experienced shame, you know, a little bit of, I mean, loss, grief, addiction. I mean, and there's a lot of aspects. I mean, this is, this is a book that reflects a lot of our different stages. And the biggest invitation is, you know, I know by the time you finish this book, you're going to be inspired to kind of ask yourself, okay, so what's, what's my next, like, what's my inner mountain? What's my outer mountain? I mean, what it is beautiful about the whole story within the book, it's almost like this beautiful healing circle. 
Mm. You know, it's, it's a combination of common humanity, how the power of all of us being able to heal in community, how when we're willing to hear our stories, and especially just even being willing to take a walk in nature, the power and the transformative experience that we can all do it. I mean, it's a roller coaster ride that people are really going to enjoy. The book is In the Shadow of the Mountain, Sylvia Vasquez Lovato. Thanks for coming on no, Livewire. Thank you so much. That was Sylvia Vasquez Lovato right here on Livewire. Her incredible book, In the Shadow of the Mountain, is available now. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back with, I can't believe I'm getting to say this, Ani DeFranco. Ani's going to be talking about making music, also releasing 22 albums on her own label, which she started when she was 19 years old. And we're going to hear a song as well. So stick around. Lots of live wires still to come. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. All right, our musical guest this hour is nothing short of a legend. She's Grammy winner, feminist icon. Her latest album, Revolutionary Love, is her 22nd album that she released on her record label, Righteous Babe Records. Uh, we talked to Ani DeFranco from her home studio in New Orleans during the pandemic. Take a listen to this. Ani DeFranco, welcome to the Live Wire House Party. Woo-hoo. Thanks for having me. I was surprised when I was doing a little research on you that you founded Righteous Babe Records when you were like 20. I mean, yeah. that's incredible to me. And how do you think that shaped the arc of your career that you've been basically in charge of your own albums for all these years and not, you know, at the behest of, of some label? And you must have turned down what was felt like a ton of money in your early life to go this on your own. Yeah. Well, one will never know the extent of the money or exposure (laughs) or this or that that I turned down because such are the choices, you know, the the path not taken. Um, So I have only myself to blame, (laughs) you know, for all the mistakes I've made. And I prefer it that way. You know, I mean, I think in a lot of ways it would have been awesome to have the team of professionals helping me translate what I do, helping me reach people with what I do, all of that. Um, But in another way, I was freer and my records, though they might not be as polished or constructed, you know, for radio or whatever, or maximum sort of reaching the biggest audience, they are very real. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're very much like whatever trip I was on at the time. <laughs> yeah. you know? So there's a, there's a deep honesty going on, if nothing else. I think also that very real and, and, and honest nature of your songwriting is why your fans really connect with you. Like, 
really. And I can only imagine that that feels great, but it's also uh, sometimes a lot of, as we now say, emotional labor for you Mm -hmm. to have a whole bunch of people who feel really strongly about this stuff that you've created. What is it like to have that kind of connection with a bunch of people, many of whom you haven't even met? Well, it's intense. You know, it is intense. And sometimes it can be overwhelming. It it can be uh, too much, Mm. but I wouldn't trade it. It's, you know, it's a wonderful problem to have, really. Having people that I've never met feel they know me, um, feel they love me, (laughs) even though, you know... um, it really is a beautiful thing, and I and it makes sense to me because, yeah, like we've been talking about, I've been so naked in my songs and in my shows and in my records that I'm not hiding anything, really. So, yes, you do know me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know you back necessarily, oh, person that's, you know, in my face now um, hugging and, and hyperventilating. and, and um, But it is still just even when it's overwhelming, like I said, I I wouldn't trade it. It's so important just to feel I've connected with people. I've, you know, I've just, I've bared myself and I've put so much out there and to feel that it's connected and maybe even helped, maybe uplifted, maybe affirmed somebody else's existence. That's my, that's my reward right there. Um, you're someone who was known for being very progressive and really bringing up a lot of conversations in your music that other people weren't at the time. I'm curious what it's like for you, though, to still be learning at this point in your career, you know, because I, I can see and I'm guilty of this myself. If if one intends to be someone who really is inclusive and thinks about other people's experiences, it's also kind of mind blowing to realize you weren't doing it right. I don't mean you specifically, but we people weren't doing it right for all these years that we thought we were doing our best. Yeah. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? Growing, listening, staying engaged with people, continuing to learn uh, more about what you don't know, because how could you, you know, your experience, I know mine, you know, yours. So, uh, I mean, the only thing that scares me these days is that we sometimes don't give each other license to not know Mm -hmm. everything, to not be born into Mm -hmm. ultimate consciousness, Mm -hmm. to be on a learning journey. You know, I, I certainly, like you said, I've, I've been on one my whole life and I honestly don't know how I would have fared this journey if I'd been born into the age of social media of, you know, like, I don't know how a young person who wants to do as I've done, sort of push the envelope, um, step out, try, like you said, you know, try to challenge society, try to speak to their own truth, to, to, to what they see. And, and that involves making mistakes. And so I'm, I feel terrified for young people who want to be that agent of, you know, of change and challenging and stepping out and taking risks now. I feel very much for the young and intrepid. (laughs) I wish them well. I hope that we, you know, can come back around to this idea that it's not about being right. It's about being in it 
and and continuing to learn and say, oh, I know more than I did yesterday. Mm. And maybe even to say sorry for what I did or said yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, what song are we going to hear? Oh, gee whiz. Um, I thought I'd play you simultaneously. This is the latest single off of your, your album, Revolutionary Love. That is correct. This is Ani DeFranco here on the Livewire House Party. Oh 
was Ani DeFranco right here on Livewire. Her album, Revolutionary Love, is out now. And she's got a new children's book coming out this month called The Knowing. So check that out as well. All right, that's going to do it for this special episode of Livewire this week. A huge thanks to our guests, Jamie Loftus, Sylvia Vasquez-Lovato, and Ani DeFranco. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Our marketing manager is Paige Thomas. Our production fellow is Tanvi Kumar. And Yasmin Medin is our intern. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer, and our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Josh O'Rourke, Portland, Oregon, and Manuel Galaviz of Vancouver, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, ski-dabble on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.